Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to As a Woman, Fertility Hormones and Beyond. I'm your host, Dr. Natalie Crawford, and I am a board-certified OBGYN and fertility physician and also co-founder of Fora Fertility in Austin, Texas. Each week on this podcast, I discuss health and fertility and how they relate to your true self. Become a part of the community of collaboration that amplifies others as a woman. I hope you enjoy the episode. Hello and welcome back to the As A Woman podcast. I am your host, Dr. Natalie Crawford. I'm a board-certified OBGYN and REI, co-founder of Fora Fertility, and I am here today to talk to you all about your fertility journey. And that is what this podcast is all about, so that you can learn more about your body, more about reproduction, more about your fertility, be supported on your fertility journey, and every week we break down different topics or answer your questions. Preparing for an IUI. Now, an IUI is an intrauterine insemination. IUI can be used for different reasons. We can use IUI because of male factor infertility, because of absolute male factor, as in there is no male, we're using donor sperm. It also can be used for unexplained infertility. And I'm just going to talk through the different protocol types, questions to ask, what the process is like, and everything you need to know to be prepared if you are considering or you are doing an IUI. A few housekeeping items before we jump in. Number one, please ask your questions for fertility's sake. FFS is our weekly Q&A segment at the end of every podcast episode, and these questions come directly from you. These questions are asked on Instagram at Natalie Crawford MD every Monday. You can put them in the question box. We pull from them some of the most commonly asked questions. We will actually answer them here each week, some of them on Instagram and some of them in the weekly newsletter. The weekly newsletter has updates on what is going on in my world, fertility in the news, and answering some of your emailed questions. So you can sign up for the newsletter at nataliecrawfordmd.com newsletter. Also, the Enhance Your Natural Fertility and the IVF courses are going to be back on the website this week. They are going to be discounted in price now that we've worked out a few of the kinks, but you can join the over 250 people who have been members of the classes. We have taken their feedback and made the course content even more accessible to everybody. So if you are either wanting to optimize your natural fertility, really do a deep dive and a program to understand really in an organized fashion, what it is you need to know about your body, your health to optimize your fertility or your fertility journey, that is the Optimize Your Natural Fertility Program. All those questions y'all ask me all the time, it's all right in there. And then the IVF guide is specifically if you're going to do IVF. This is going to break down in detail hours and hours of content on the IVF process, handouts about questions you should ask, embryo transfer, you name it. So you can find those on the website also, nataliecrawfordmd.com. 
You also can call in and leave a voicemail for some of my favorite episodes, which are just Q&A episodes where I answer your questions. The voicemail number is 657-229-3672. So go ahead and call and ask away. So I always think the first step of preparing for something is to understand it. And if we're going to understand an IUI, that is both the process, but also why are you doing it? What are the expected outcomes? And what do you need to know to potentially have the highest chance of success in your scenario? So IUI itself stands for intrauterine insemination. This is different than an at-home vaginal insemination that some people do. You can actually purchase sperm from sperm banks for vaginal insemination, and it is cleaned and processed differently. Meaning, if you think about the ejaculate, you have sperm that is inside a lot of seminal fluid. And the reason why is that that fluid protects the sperm. The vagina is very acidic and the sperm is alkaline. So it will just dissolve, be eaten away by the vagina. And that's why it has all of this ejaculate around it to really protect it from the acidity of the vagina. If you put that same sperm with that ejaculate into the uterus, it would cause one an infection, but to a huge inflammatory reaction, because that's not what normally happens. Only the sperm swim out of that ejaculate through the cervix and into the uterine cavity. So when you're doing an IUI, when somebody says they're cleaning or processing the sample, really what we mean is that we are taking that ejaculate and you centrifuge it, you spin it down, and you essentially get the sperm because they weigh more into a little pellet at the bottom, dump out all the other stuff, and then you redistribute that sperm into a liquid that is not toxic to the uterine cavity, and you pull that up into a small syringe. So one thing that people will often ask is, oh, you're just getting the good sperm, right? Not really. You're just getting the sperm. You are getting rid of debris, extra cells, skin cells, white blood cells, any extra debris that could be around. And so if you think about the ejaculate like a highway and everybody has stalled cars because they've got some dead stuff and some debris hanging out and doing the processing for the IUI is getting rid of all that debris. There is no traffic on the highway. But if your cars don't work, if your engine's dead It's not going to matter. So you still need good quality sperm. And in fact, even in this cleaning process, you lose a huge amount of the sperm because you heard what I just said. We centrifuge it down and get a little pellet and redistribute it. So you lose sperm in that process. So one thing that's very important is that you have to have enough sperm in order to do a semen analysis. And we are not selecting good versus bad sperm. So in the same breath, if all your sperm are abnormally shaped, none of your cars work, do we really anticipate that this is going to help us overcome the process or the problem that you may be having? So when we think about how many sperm do you need, when we look at the total modal sperm count or the volume times concentration times motility, that's giving you a number of how many sperm are in the entire ejaculate that can move. Studies have shown that for IUI to have the best chance of success, you want that count to be 10 million moving sperm or more. And it doesn't mean that you don't do it if it's less than that, but we're talking about for the best odds of success. We also know that in the sperm processing, you're going to lose up to half of the sperm. So in that entire centrifuge situation, you may lose half the sperm. So that means we are really looking for you to have a total modal sperm count of around 20 million sperm 
or close to that, to feel like this is an acceptable sample for IUI. Most people will feel okay if it's close, if it's above 15. But if it's less than that, you are expecting to have suboptimal values for the IUI. And many people will say, this is not an IUI level sperm. You're going to have lower than average success rates. Success rates are already pretty low with IUI. So this is not an IUI sample. Okay. Also, if we just think about it from the other end, if you're buying sperm from a sperm bank, when you buy sperm from a sperm bank, sperm banks like to make money. That's fine. That's nothing wrong with it. It's a business and it's their right. But they are going to take one guy's sample and they're going to divide it up into as many vials as they can so that they can sell as much sperm as possible. However, they should give you a guarantee, meaning if you purchase an IUI vial, which by definition should have more sperm than an IVF vial, where we don't need nearly as many, they tend to guarantee that you will have somewhere typically between 7 to 10 million sperm, total moving sperm, upon warming the vial. So we want those post-wash counts to be around 10 million or more in a fresh ejaculated sample. When you thaw the sample from the sperm bank, it's already coming ready. IUI vials are ready to go. You don't have to prep them. You just have to warm them up. And so they are guaranteeing that you have a certain minimum. And now a word from one of our sponsors, Apostrophe. With the temperatures starting to warm up, I'm so excited that summer is around the corner and getting ready and looking forward to the summer months. But I know that when I'm outside enjoying nature, I need to pick up supplies to prepare myself for summer adventures. And if you want to get your skin glowing in time for summer, it's time for you to get started with Apostrophe, who is sponsoring this episode. Apostrophe's goal is to help you feel confident in your own skin. So whether you're dealing with breakouts, signs of aging, or acne scarring, Apostrophe will help you love the skin you're in. I personally love that you get access to an expert dermatology team, a tailored treatment plan. It's simple to sign up for your first visit, and there is no in-person appointment or trip to the pharmacy needed. We have a special deal for our audience. Get your first visit for only $5 at apostrophe.com slash A-A-W when you use our code A-A-W. That's a savings of $15. This code is only available to our listeners. To get started, just go to apostrophe.com slash AAW and click get started. Then use the code AAW at sign up and you'll get your first visit for only $5. Thank you, Apostrophe, for sponsoring this episode. And now a word from one of our sponsors, Ritual. Did you know that women were excluded from clinical research policy by federal law until 1993? But women belong in scientific research. Their essential and ritual knows this. I choose ritual multivitamin every day because it is easy to take, and I know that I am getting high quality and traceable ingredients in a clean and bioavailable forms. In fact, Ritual conducted a university led human clinical trial for their Essential for Women 18 Plus multivitamin to assess its efficacy, and the results showed increase in vitamin D levels by 43% and omega-3 DHA levels by 41% in just 12 weeks. No my shady business. Ritual's Essential for Women 18 Plus is a multivitamin that you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month at ritual.com slash A-A-W. Start Ritual or add Essential for Women 18 Plus to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash A-A-W for 25% off. Thank you, Ritual. Now, what happens if you warm up that sperm and it doesn't? 
Well, number one, most likely you're going to proceed with the insemination because it's the right day, the right time, and you may not have backup sperm. If you have backup sperm, then you're probably going to thaw another vial, add them together, see if you can get a higher number. You also should have your clinic submit the paperwork saying this sperm vial did not meet the recommendations. And then you should get your money back or get a credit or something should happen from the sperm bank. And not everybody at every clinic will do a full post-wash analysis. Some clinics will just look under the microscope and if it looks good, great. But if you don't see many moving, then you'll go and do the analysis. And both are fine because if you have 30 million or more moving sperm on your semen analysis, you really should have enough on the IUI day. And people who are prepping IUIs and who look at sperm a lot, if that's the clinic's protocol, they know when something looks abnormal. Now, if your clinic's letting you sign up for an IUI and your pre-wash value is 7 million moving sperm, that's your semen analysis value. I have a real hard time believing that this is going to be an appropriate sample for an IUI. How do you expect to have more than that on a different day when you come in and wash it. But you would be surprised because I see people all over the place who do cycle and cycle and cycle of IUI with really poor sperm parameters to the point that that had such a low chance of success. And it's really sad because they wasted money and time. The actual IUI process, and then I'm going to back up to some other factors, But the actual IUI process is really nothing to be very overwhelmed about. One thing that's super important to understand is how is your clinic timing the IUI? And let me tell you, there has been a paper that really told us, for the most part, it doesn't matter, y'all, because sperm can live in the female reproductive tract for up to five days. We know that. If you have listened to other podcast episodes, You know that the sperm can hang around crevices of the cervix or in the uterus and just wait for that egg. The egg can only live for 24 hours. So the real key here is as long as sperm is getting in close or before that egg comes out so that they are waiting and ready. So the two main ways, if you think about it, that you can time an IUI, one is either going to be with a trigger shot. So you are following somebody with an ultrasound to evaluate that they have a mature egg or eggs, depending on the goal based on size, and then using that size to just say, this is the time you take a trigger shot, and then you time the IUI after that. The other is to use an OPK or an ovulation predictor kit. Remember that an OPK is checking for the LH surge from the brain. You only care about the start of the surge because the entire luteal phase, LH is going to be surging up and down. The surge tends to happen from your pituitary gland in the early morning hours. Then it has to process and get into your urine. So sometimes I see people who are taking OPKs every single morning because the box says so. Then you go to work and you might miss your positive because one day you took it so early that you hadn't had that surge in your urine yet. And by the next 24 hour period, it had already dropped and you never got that positive surge. This is why I recommend that if you're taking OPKs, you use them between 10 a.m. to 2 p.m. Because at that time, if you surge that morning, it will be positive in your urine. 
The other hard thing about OPKs, much harder for people with PCOS, much harder depending on your hydration status. So if you drink a ton of water, your urine might be dilute. It might be hard to tell. A urinary-based LH kit is not like a pregnancy test. And what I mean by that is in a pregnancy test, any second line is a positive. You have no HCG if you're not pregnant. You have HCG if you are. Any line counts. In an LH test, your body has LH, right? It does something. And what you're looking for is that surge. So when is your LH higher? So if you're using a line-based test, you're looking for the line to be as dark or darker than the control, or you can use a digital test that will tell you if you're surging. There's also a digital test that tells you your fertile window, understanding that what it is trying to do is get you to have intercourse in those days leading up to your surge, and they are using an estrogen test to tell you those fertile days. And then an LH test is telling you the peak, but it's all wrapped into the same test device. And some people will just have indefinite fertile days, especially if you have a high account or PCOS. OPKs are not my favorite for IUIs. I don't mind them for timed intercourse cycles or ovulation induction cycles because there's just less on the line. And I've worked at clinics that use them for IUIs. And all I will say is it led to more questions than not. In general, the standard is that if you get a positive OPK, most places will do the IUI the next day. Remember that when you get a positive OPK, that's the day of the LH surge. That is the day your body is surging and ovulation typically happens the day after that. If you are using a trigger shot, a recent study had shown that regardless of if you do the IUI at the time of the trigger shot or 36 hours later and you have the same odds of success. And this is because if you get the sperm there before you ovulate, remember it can hang out or you can get the sperm there when the egg is in the process of being released. So really, your clinic can do any of the above, and those are all fine. Some people will really obsess about the time of the trigger for IUI. Also fine. I can be an obsessive girl. But it's important for you to know that anywhere in that 0 to 36 is fine. We tend to do the trigger shot and then do the IUI the next day in most circumstances, but it's all okay, so you can individualize here. Also important to know is that some places will do a double IUI, and this has not shown to be beneficial. There have been multiple studies that have looked at this, and bigger studies that have compiled results have failed to show a benefit. Is it wrong to do a double IUI? Is it harmful? No. Is it going to maybe cost you more money, make you go to the office more? If you're using donor sperm, are you spending more on sperm? Yes, I'm not a fan of anything that costs you more money or takes you more time without benefiting you. So I don't do double IUI. But those are two basic things to think about when it comes to the timing. Now, when it comes to if you're collecting a fresh sample versus using a frozen, for a fresh sample collection, you want to typically collect and understand how your clinic does this. Do they have you collect at home or are they going to have you collect at the clinic? This has changed. This is where COVID really did change a lot in our field, meaning most clinics had you collect on site pre-COVID and then transitioned. And a lot of us haven't gone back. It's just 
many partners prefer to collect at home. It's more comfortable, but you should ask, are you forced to do one or the other? Can you do either? What do you prefer? What are the instructions? If you're collecting in the clinic, your partner will be instructed to get there before the IUI, typically hours before is the collection time so that there's time to process the sperm. If you are collecting at home, same rules apply, but typically you have a set drop-off time. I usually recommend that there's abstinence for at least two to three days beforehand. 48 hours is typically sufficient so that we have enough sperm in the sample. Partners should be instructed to get all the sample in the cup and then just bring it to the clinic. You don't need to heat it, cool it, do anything crazy. Your clinic might have some media that they give you that you can put into the cup that actually allows the ejaculate to last longer. So if you're further away, putting that media in will give you more time to get there. So just understanding the clinic process, making sure you know, are you collecting at home? Are you collecting on site? And what you need to do. Importantly, I do think it's important that some people know that there can be collection condoms that if your religion or just by circumstance, it's extremely difficult to, for you to collect with ejaculation, you can collect within a collection condom and then the inside of the condom is sterile-ish and can be utilized for the sample. That's not our favorite. As you can imagine, there's more spillage. It's just more complicated. But if that's what you need to do to get the job done, then you need to talk to your clinic to make sure you have everything you need. And certainly there are patients who have religious reasons and we always want to accommodate that. I hate when patients don't share their unwillingness to do something, but we think they're just being stubborn or not helpful, but really it's because it's important to them. So you should always feel free to have an open discussion with your clinic about potential barriers. When it comes to the actual procedure, some clinics will be picky and they'll want you to come with a full bladder. And the reason why is not to be mean or to make you feel more uncomfortable, but it's because the bladder, when it is full, will flatten out the uterus so it is in a more straight line. This just makes it easier. Naturally, most people have a slightly antiverted uterus. That means the uterus is tipped forward. People also have a retroverted uterus tipped backwards. All of this is called tilted and it's all fine. But if you do have an antiverted uterus, having a full bladder straightens it out. Some people are extra, extra about this and they like check your bladder and make sure it's enough and make you pee out 100 cc's and then check again with the ultrasound and they go crazy. Personally, I don't care about your bladder when it comes to an IUI. We have catheters. It's not difficult to get into almost everybody's uterus. Now, if I've had a hard time in the past, I might ask you to fill it up more. If you want to be on the safe side, go to your clinic with a relatively full bladder. That way, if they wanted it, you have it. If they didn't give you specific instructions, but it can be just as difficult if you're squirming around or your bladder is so full that you're extra uncomfortable too. So you should know, do I need a full bladder or does it not matter? For us, it doesn't matter. And now a word from one of our sponsors, Quince. The weather's getting warmer, so it's time to say goodbye to jackets and sweaters and hello to shorts and tees. I wanted to update my wardrobe for the long haul without spending a fortune. And luckily, I found Quince. Now I've got a lineup of timeless pieces that keep me looking effortlessly chic year after year. The best part is that Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands, but Quince partners directly with top factories cutting out the cost of the middleman, passing the saving to us, and only working with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices. I personally cannot wait to wear my cute tan linen set this summer. 
So it's your turn to get warm weather ready with Quince. Go to quince.com slash A-A-W for free shipping on your order and 365 day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash A-A-W to get free shipping and 365 day returns. Quince.com slash A-A-W. Thank you, Quince. A speculum will go into the vagina. Cervix will be visualized. Cervix will generally be cleaned with some type of cotton swab, just getting away the cervical mucus. And the sperm is going to be pulled up into a very small little catheter. Your doctor or nurse or andrologist or somebody should show you that this sperm belongs to you and your person. Whether it's the sperm bank, a partner, you should be able to see the name, do an eyeball check. You should have to sign a piece of paper saying that that sperm is going in your body. And then that catheter is going to be placed through the cervix and sperm is going to be injected into the uterine cavity. You might feel nothing. You might feel pressure. You might feel a small cramp and then everything's going to be removed. Some places do it under ultrasound. That doesn't improve success rates. Typically, if they do that, it's honestly just to help train their staff on using an ultrasound for an embryo transfer. It doesn't change anything for the IUI. Afterwards, you might lie in the room for five to 10 minutes. That is not for any real reason, but just to make you feel good. There's no study showing that you lying there right after the IUI is going to be helpful, but most of us do it anyway. Then you should be given a day to check a pregnancy test and you may or may not be taking progesterone depending on the entire protocol that you are doing. All right. And then the big question is about sex. What about sex and IUI? All right. Again, you do want to have a little abstinence period ahead of time because we want to save up good sperm for the IUI itself. Many times somebody might tell you to have sex ahead of that so that you get a little sperm in the reproductive tract just in case you ovulate early. But what about afterwards? There's two different time periods. There is sex immediately or right after the IUI when that egg is still in transit. Does orgasm or contractions help the sperm and the egg meet each other? And then there is sex in the implantation window about a week later or the mid-luteal phase. Sex around the time of the IUI immediately after. Doesn't change pregnancy rates if your sperm is normal in the IUI. If the sperm counts were low on the post-wash and your doctor tells you, hi, you're signing the paper, but your sperm count was low, but we're going to do it anyway, that would mean you might benefit from some intercourse afterward. And that's what studies show. If the sperm counts were low, having intercourse in that immediate post-IUI window was advantageous for pregnancy rates. And that makes sense because we're really not getting enough sperm where they need to go. So by having sex, you're having more sperm. Now, an older study actually done by one of my fellowship mentors suggested that luteal intercourse decreased your fecundability or your chance at getting pregnant. However, a more recent, bigger study actually showed that it doesn't make any difference. Implantation intercourse, the thought there was, does uterine contractions in that time window interfere with embryo implantation? And the answer is no. And that makes sense. What I usually tell people with IUI is that intercourse after that moment is recreational. Go for it if you want to. It's not going to hurt you. It might help you. If you were told the sperm counts were low the day of the IUI, then that is a good reason to have intercourse afterwards. And really by afterwards, probably in that next 24-hour time period is going to be the best while that egg is out and available. 
And then when it comes to the different options for the IUI cycle itself and your expected odds of outcome, number one, you're never going to have higher than your age-related chance of getting pregnant with an IUI. If you have infertility, you have lower than your age-related chance of getting pregnant. If we are doing IUI because there is no sperm and this is a timed donor insemination, then we are trying to get you to your age-related chance of getting pregnant. Remember that if you are 30, this is about 20% per cycle. If you're 35, it's going to be about 12% per cycle. If you are 38 to 40, it's going to be closer to 5%. And these numbers are presuming that you don't have other children. If you've had a child in the past, then these numbers are a little bit higher because you've proven certain things can work. Remember that there's things we can't test that lead people to have unexplained infertility. And some of this can be inflammation, environment, fertilization. So if you have been trying to get pregnant for a year and the sperm counts are normal and the tubes are open and you ovulate. Your chance of getting pregnant is now 4 to 5% per cycle. And when we do an IUI, the max that we're going to get is going to be 8 to 10%. Now, if you're 40, you're not going to get 8 to 10%. We're trying to get you to 5% because your unexplained odds are even lower. They're going to be less than 2%. The take-home message is that an IUI is never going to exceed the expected outcome for your age. And if somebody's quoting you IUI success rates, like 25 to 30%, that's bonkers. If you do not ovulate regularly. We also should add in ovulation induction with your IUI. So the options for treatment include one, a natural cycle IUI. You ovulate, you're young, we just need to get sperm there. So we time it around your natural cycle. You can still watch with ultrasound, still use a trigger shot, or you might check with OPKs. You may or may not do luteal progesterone in these cases, but it's all about no ovulation induction, just putting sperm there, just trying to mimic your normal odds of success. Number two, ovulation induction. This is typically with oral agents like Clomid or Letrozole. This can be if there's any irregularity in your ovulatory pattern, your periods are not perfectly regular, maybe there's some luteal phase issues, some spotting, short cycles, long cycles, PCOS. These medications can help optimize your cycle. And what we're shooting for when you do ovulation induction is typically to have one to two eggs because we're just trying to get eggs and sperm together. These cycles are off Often monitored with ultrasound and often given progesterone in the luteal phase. Now, there's also unexplained. And if you have unexplained infertility or unexplained pregnancy loss, we often are doing ovulation induction, but more so super ovulation, or we're trying to get more than one egg. When we do this, the number of egg goal is going to be based on your age. So somebody who's younger and we expect more of their eggs to be genetically normal, we want fewer eggs than somebody who's older. So I might shoot for two to three eggs and somebody who's 30. I might shoot for three to four eggs and somebody who's 39. It is just going to titrate to age. But in this case, we are really trying to get more than one. And if you have unexplained and you're only getting one, Hopefully you're having a conversation with your doctor about upping the dose of the medication if they can to try to see if they can get a higher number. Anytime you do ovulation induction, anytime you ovulate more than one egg, you do have a risk for multiples. So regardless of the scenario, I might tell somebody, hey, you have type 1 diabetes and you can't have twins or you had this terrible uterine surgery and you can't have twins, so you're not a good candidate for this. And we need to do IVF to have the highest chance of success. That's your doctor looking out for you. All right. So if we're thinking about IUI, number one, why are you doing it? 
just understand. Number two, are you going to do a cycle with ovulation induction or superovulation, or is it a natural cycle? Number three, what is your expected egg goal and are they monitoring that? Are they watching with ultrasound? Number four, are you triggering with a trigger shot or are you using an ovulation predictor test? Number five, how are they timing the IUI based off of that? And are they collecting at home? When are they doing it? What are the steps you need to know? After that, are you going to be taking progesterone in the luteal phase or not? And then number six, are they bringing you in for a blood pregnancy test or are you checking a urinary test at home? Often we actually do urine pregnancy tests for this and if you get a positive, we'll bring you in for the blood. But some clinics will do a blood for everybody in these cycles. So understanding those things plus what is your expected odds of success based on our diagnosis, what do you think is the likelihood this is going to work per cycle and how many cycles are we going to do? In almost zero circumstance, should you be doing more than six? Many times that cutoff number is lower, closer to three to four, depending on the circumstance, but it should not be more than six. If you are on your 12th IUI, something is not working, and I am concerned that you are spending more money than it would have cost you to do IVF and get pregnant, and your pregnancy rates per cycle are going to be so low in that 12th IUI. Hopefully this helped answer some of your questions about the IUI process and gave you a little bit of a roadmap of what to expect and some questions that you can be asking your doctor to better understand what this is going to look like. I am now going to answer some of your fertility questions. This is from our For Fertility Sake or FFS. Remember that you can call and leave your voicemail questions for my favorite episodes, which are the Q&A voicemail episodes, 657 229 3672. Again, that is 657-229-3672. Also, don't forget to sign up for the weekly newsletter at nataliecrawfordmd.com slash newsletter. You will get some questions answered there, and you can ask your questions every Monday on Instagram at nataliecrawfordmd. All right, the first question is, does basal body temperature correlate to how high progesterone level is? And the answer is no. Remember, that progesterone is made from the corpus luteum. The corpus luteum is the follicle from which the egg grew inside. That follicle ruptured when your egg was released, reformed to become the corpus luteum. That LH surge that you detected on your OPK test is the first LH surge. But after that, LH surges up and down and up and down the entire luteal phase. That is why once you get a positive OPK, we tell you not to keep taking other OPKs. And your progesterone can range anywhere from 3 to 40 at any moment in the luteal phase and have it be perfectly normal. Nothing is wrong with that. Once you get pregnant, your pregnancy will secrete HCG and that HCG rescues or also stimulates the corpus luteum. And from that moment, progesterone will rise exponentially, meaning it no longer is going to fluctuate up and down, should be more constantly high. However, up before then, and when you're checking your BBT, this is all based on corpus luteum function and progesterone is going up and down and up and down. The production of progesterone raises the body temperature. And so when you see that shift in temperature is when that corpus luteum is really making progesterone. But the temp elevation does not correlate with the amount of progesterone. I have lean PCOS. Can I do a frozen embryo transfer without metformin? I hate the side effects. Absolutely. Metformin can be a tool. It can help us with PCOS. It really can be beneficial if you're doing IVF in the IVF cycle because it can decrease the risk of ovarian hyperstimulation syndrome and improve ovarian response. But in your frozen embryo transfer, 
I don't need your ovaries to do anything. And so if, especially if you are not proven to be insulin resistant, I do not make you be on metformin at that time. If you are insulin resistant or you have like an elevated hemoglobin A1C, we definitely need to make sure that we are lowering those insulin levels down so that you have a healthy baby. However, you don't by nature have to be on metformin just because you have PCOS, especially if you hate the side effects. So talk to your doctor about that. Are there any tips for trying to conceive when your partner has unexplained low sperm motility? Remember that motility is often environmentally derived or just how the testes were made or the anatomy. So there's may or may not be a changeable factor. Things that we know can impair motility can be extra heat exposure, things like even a varicocele around the testes, sitting in a hot tub, lots and lots saunas very often, but more so it's going to be things like smoking cigarettes, marijuana usage, or obesity, and just overall inflammation and not being healthy. If you have a low motility, especially in the context of a good concentration, these are some of my favorite patients for IUI. Because if you think about what an IUI is, I am taking the sperm and I'm putting it closer to where it needs to be. If the sperm doesn't move well, it has low motility, I have actually helped that sperm out a lot. So if the shape is normal, the concentration is good, there's just some low motility, this is a good option to consider an IUI, especially if it's unexplained and you've tried some of the antioxidant vitamins, you've tried getting healthier, you've tried making lifestyle changes, and you're really not seeing a change in sperm. Remember also, sperm changes every three months. So if your partner just had COVID or something that was an infectious etiology, their sperm counts could have been lower. So you can always try to make changes and repeat it and see if three months later you see a different outcome. What are your thoughts on donating your eggs if you want to get pregnant in the future? This is such a well thought out question. I think that egg donation is such a lovely, lovely gift that you're giving to somebody. I would challenge everybody who's donating their own eggs to really ask about their own fertility goals. Have you grows in some of those eggs for yourself. I'm not the biggest fan of the companies out there that are telling you they can take your group of eggs and split them and save half for you and give half to other people. One, because I do feel like it coerces people to give their eggs away who may not be wanting to. And secondarily, I don't think people understand how many eggs it takes to get to a baby. And I'm really worried that people who are not physicians leading this movement do not understand that too many people are going to have too few frozen eggs will have given their eggs away to other couples and not be able to have a child on their own. So if you do want to donate your eggs, it's an amazing gift, but I'd really challenge you to see, you know, how old you are and set a line in the sand that should you consider freezing your own eggs if by this certain age you're not ready to get pregnant. It doesn't have to be at the same moment, but that's just going to keep more doors open for you. I do have a dear, dear friend who has been an egg donor and really tried hard to add to her family later in life and was never able to. And I don't think she regretted any of her choices, but I know if she could go back in time and have some eggs frozen from her younger self, she absolutely would have done so. My OBGYN prescribed Letrozole for irregular cycles, but didn't do any blood work to monitor what do you think honestly it may be fine if you respond to letrozole and you get a period afterward if you're not pregnant then you are ovulating what we would expect is you get a period about two weeks after your ovulation so if they're not checking blood work i would think it'd be great if you would check cervical mucus or an obk or bbt but somebody whose periods went from irregular to regular 
on letrozole is ovulating, and it's not standard for everybody to have to check blood work. Mid-luteal progesterone can confirm ovulation, but you have to know when you ovulated, and people do ovulate at different times from letrozole. So I haven't checked mid-luteal progesterone levels in years and years, at least for this purpose. I tend to use ultrasound, but before that, when I was in a clinic where it was harder to use ultrasound, I relied on OPK testing. And if somebody didn't get a positive on their OPK, then I would bring them in for an ultrasound and potentially blood work at that time. All right, friends. Well, that is it for fertility's sake. Again, you can ask your questions Mondays on Instagram at Natalie Crawford MD, and you can also call the voicemail 657-229-3672. Thank you, friends. Thank you all for listening to As a Woman. It would mean so much if you could rate, review, and follow the podcast to be notified of new episodes every Sunday. I hope you learned something new, and I hope you share it with someone in your life. Be sure to follow along on Instagram at Natalie Crawford MD, and check out the YouTube channel Natalie Crawford MD. If you're interested in becoming a patient, you can also follow Fora Fertility. I'm so thrilled to have you here, part of the community that amplifies others as a woman.